Hey, I want to welcome you guys here. If you're new here, uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and we started a series a few months ago going through the book of Revelation, and that's where we're at today. Um, so what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into the book of Revelation. If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn there to Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to be picking up this morning. Um, before we jump into that, what I want to try to do in terms of prefacing this before we pray is uh, to just simply say uh, we're getting into some pretty gnarly stuff in the book. Um, I mean, today we're going to be looking at like satanic locusts and satanic soldiers and like, like radical cataclysmic events. It's going to be awesome. Like, praise Jesus, huh? Isn't that good stuff? You came here, you woke up this morning, like, you know, I want to know about comets hitting the earth and killing everybody. Like, you're welcome. Welcome to Calvary Slope. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek. We're going to be looking at some gnarly stuff. Um, but again, to be honest with you, like what we said from the very beginning, uh, we're going to bring all this stuff back to Jesus. You're like, how do you like associate comments to Jesus? We'll show you. Um, what I want to say is this, is um, we're, we're getting into some stuff in the book that has, uh, like I've been saying over the past few weeks, is radically, widely debated. There are all sorts of ideas and uh, Concepts that have sort of risen as to what this portion of the book is about. Um, I love history almost as much as I love my Bible. And uh, that's one of the things I've always done. If I, I've, I've, I'm the type of guy, I'm kind of nerdy when it comes to this. I like history books. I'll read history books. And I'll actually read like the marginal side notes. Right? At the bottom. Those little like font point, you know, three on the very bottom of the page, I love those. Those are my favorite part of the book, footnotes. I'm all about footnotes. Um, and one of the things I like about reading with regard to reading history is it gives you a really good insight, I think, in terms of the way different people throughout the past have viewed things. Uh, this section of scripture, it's very interesting to me, and it's a curious thing to me to note that from chapter 8 on, all the types of events that we're going to be reading about, things of that nature, have been viewed throughout the ages, throughout 2,000 years of history by great saints in so many different ways. One of the things that I found really fascinating about chapter 8 and chapter 9, from a historical perspective, reading different commentators and different pastors, I mean, I'm talking godly men, guys like you know who like Spurgeon is, or even Puritans, a guy named Thomas Goodwin, love that guy. A lot of great saints throughout history have actually viewed these passages of Scripture uh, curiously uh, from their own perspective, from their own historical worldview. Meaning, uh, Thomas Goodwin is an example. He was a Puritan, lived obviously during the 1700s, 1600s. And uh, he wrote and he spoke of the events of chapter 8 and 9 as happening already throughout history, uh, some of the events actually taking place with the fall of Rome, Rome fell. So he would actually see some of the events, some of the things that were going to take place in chapter 8 and 9 as events that have already been kind of taken place or transpired within, his, within a historical context itself. The reason why I make this point is what's fascinating to me is that most uh, pastors, teachers, theologians throughout the ages of 2,000 years of history have actually taken these passages of Scripture and have superimposed their own cultural context over the text. And so we read it today, like in you know, 2010, we're like, how did Thomas Goodwin come to that conclusion? Uh, for the same reason why we arrive at certain concepts in the text from our own perspective, because we're all guilty, if I can use that phrase, we're all guilty of trying to read our own cultural context 
into these events. We're all guilty of that. So here's my point. Is that we can look at a guy like Thomas Goodwin, who's this great Puritan saint, uh, who writes things about this, and we're like, ah, I'm not really sure if that makes sense. I'm not really sure if that is the actual correct way to view this, because he just basically took his context, his culture, his world in which he was living in, and saw that in the text of Revelation. In the same way, I would say, I think we've got to be careful in 2010. That we're not reading events from the news into the context of chapters 8 and 9. I'm just saying we got to be careful. we got to be careful. Last 100 years from now, somebody reads the books of this day and age, and they're like, what a bunch of weirdos. They actually thought that, you know, Nixon or whoever was like the Antichrist. That's really weird. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So I'm just saying we got to be careful. we got to be really careful. So that's that. I want to read you a, a quote from uh, one of my favorite pastors, preachers, a guy by the name of C.H. Spurgeon. He said this. He was asked one time, can you explain the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation? That's what we're going to be looking at today, the seven trumpets. Here's what his response was. He says, no, but I can blow in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. Love that. And Spurgeon is like, look, I don't know if I can adequately, sufficiently tell you exactly what the seven trumpets are, what they speak of, what they indicate, but what I can do is I can pick up God's word and I can blow that like a trumpet to warn you of the wrath that will come. So with that being said, that's what I hope to do today. I hope as we look at the passage, we're going to do the best we can, give it our best shot to try to understand it in its context, but even more so than that, like I said from the very beginning, Jesus is our main emphasis. He's not a footnote. Jesus is not a footnote, all right? Uh, he is the main subject matter, main body of the text that we're going to be looking at. We're going to keep it that way, and our own perspectives or our own conjectures, let those be the footnotes. Let those be the marginal notes. Let Jesus be the center of it all. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on this uh, passage here today and ask God to just do a work here today. Father, we just want to, first of all, say thank you. Thank you for the cross. God, thank you that because of Jesus that we know about life. God, we just thank you for your word, that we have your word here to us, given to us. Lord, it is uh, like a love letter, God, that you've given to us. Um, and God, we just want to praise you and say thank you for that. And so, Lord, this morning as we come here, we just ask that you would help us to come humbly, Lord, we know that really the greatest characteristic, greatest attribute that a theologian or student of the Bible can have is humility. So we want to approach your word humble. Now, we just want to admit that there's a lot of things that we don't understand. We just don't comprehend. But Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you. We want to see you, Jesus. So we ask you that as we look at your word, that you would use your word to reveal to us, to unveil to us who you are. God, we also pray that your word would uh, encourage and strengthen and lift up the brokenhearted, the hurting, the sad, the depressed. God, we pray that your word would also be used as a way to, uh, to rebuke those that are in sin and, God, to bring healing to those that are just broken. So, Father, we just we commit this time in your hands. We pray that you be glorified. We pray at the end of all things, Lord, that we would have sufficient revelation uh, given to us so that we, in response, would worship you, would love you, would sing to you, would confess our sins to you, would trust in you, and be saved. So God, we commit this morning in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. 
With that being said, I want to read chapter uh, 8, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to jump in. We're going to take a look at some of this stuff. Uh, I'm just going to warn you right now, we're going to basically take a look at chapter 8 and 9. We're not going to read every single verse. Uh, we will summarize much of it. So, just so that you know that. Verse 1 says this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and the trumpets uh, were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with their prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings of flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, get you guys up to speed. What we saw a couple weeks ago uh, was that John receives this radical vision. This is a vision that John sees. He makes reference to this vision, uh, what he's seeing here later on in the text. So what John has seen is basically like this, this cartoon type of a story unfold before his eyes in sort of this visionary type state. And he then afterwards, or at some point, writes down all of these events that he sees. And what we're reading right now is a book that was originally written and distributed to seven churches throughout Asia Minor. We saw those churches in chapters 2 and 3. Churches like Philadelphia and Sardis and so on and so forth, Ephesus. Uh, and then those churches would have received these, this story, this book of Revelation they would have copied it and then redistributed it and then so on and so forth all throughout the known world. So we as Christians 2,000 years later, we're reading a 2,000-year-old document that was originally written by John on an island called Patmos. And he had written this while he was in prison uh, for teaching people about Christ. John was a good pastor. He loved Jesus. He was probably about a 90-year-old man, old guy, big long white beard I envision, stroking it all the time, praising Jesus, barely able to walk. But he loves Jesus with all of his heart. He's been a faithful guy. God faithfully gives him this unbelievable vision, which John chronicles for us and writes down. Um, again, we looked at this several weeks ago. A lot of people speculate, was this, a, was this a, a future vision? Is this something that has already transpired? Is this just sort of a historical narrative of everything that's happening? And basically what we said is, as long as Jesus is central in all things, you, you, there's, there's a lot of ways in which you can view this. And we are a church which will allow for good, welcome debate, to talk, to discuss, to look at this, as long as Jesus is central. However, my personal view is that this is a future thing. It's a future thing. So what I think John's unfolding for us is that these are events that are basically going to happen, have not happened yet. Maybe they've been echoed in the past in various types of events that have happened in the past. But by and large, I think most of these things are sort of a future type of an unfolding of events that are going to happen leading up to the final day when God's going to judge. But again, this idea of judgment is like God is a consuming fire. So judgment has a both purifying effect and a destructive effect based upon what goes into the fire. Right? You put your little army men into the fire, they melt. Right? You put silver into fire and it gets purified. As long as it's not copper and got silver overlay. That turns your, you know finger green. And the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that fire has a purifying effect and it also destroys. So I think what we see unfolding for us in these judgments, per se, is God purifying all things. Some of those things are being consumed and destroyed, and those things which are being consumed and destroyed are those things which don't align with God. Those, uh, in terms of people, are people that don't love God, people that don't uh, 
uh, respect and honor and welcome the governance of God or the kingdom of God is what we would mean. So with that being said, uh, John continues to see these events unfold. The first a series of events that John saw unfolding were what we called the seal judgments, or this seal, which was sealed by seven seals, or a scroll was sealed by seven seals. And each of these seals unfolded, we saw up until last week, the seventh seal became unfolded, and the seventh seal actually opens up into a series of new events which take place. So uh, first six seals get unfolded, the seventh seal unfolds now into these next series of sevens. They're actually trumpet judgments, and consequently, consequently, what you'll find, the seventh trumpet judgment actually unfolds into a series of seven new judgments called the bold judgments. So there's sort of like a sequence of events that the last of each one sort of unfolds into another series of sevens. Does that make sense? It's fallen so far? Okay. So here's what we're going to take a look at today is sort of the first uh, or the first six of what's called the trumpet judgments. So with that, before all of these events take place, chapter 8, verse 1, tells us that there was this uh, series of, or this moment of half an hour of silence in heaven. Um, most scholars believe that this is sort of kind of a dramatic pause. Which is this dramatic pause. Imagine. And we just saw, sort of in chapter uh, 5 and 6, that all of the hosts of heaven are singing loud praises. So I would imagine heaven is full of like joyfulness and sounds of praise and worship and honor and uh, glory being given to God. People singing songs. Maybe the, you know, there's instruments being played. Um, we've been trying to point this out. that Basically, heaven is a place of extreme worship, extreme honor. Um, and if you tend to be the type of person that's all reserved, uh, you won't be in heaven. All right? God will somehow release that. We will all be Pentecostals in heaven. Every last one of us. Uh, it doesn't matter what your temperament is. We will worship Jesus. We'll be on our knees. We'll sing songs. We'll all be playing instruments. Heaven will be absolutely phenomenal. And there's all this noise and sounds and beauty and all this uh, worship and praise going on. And all of a sudden in chapter 8, verses uh, 1 through 5 that we just read, basically tells us that there's this period of absolute dead silence. Now, silence is kind of a crazy thing. Think about this. In a, in, in, a, in a stadium, if you've ever been in a stadium where there's like hundreds, hundreds, or maybe thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, and all of a sudden there's like this silence, there's something about silence that just sort of like, it's eerie a little bit. Like a kid falls, and you hear a big thump, and you're like, there's a silence there. And you know that that silence is waiting to just crack open a big cry. But there's like this pause. It's like a pregnant pause of like, that didn't sound good. You hear this thump, and all of a sudden, you know that silence is not a good silence. You know that that silence is sort of like a, okay, this is going to be a big cry, a big wail. And that seems to be what is happening here in the first few verses of chapter 8. There's a silence for about the space of half an hour, and sort of like this pregnant silence about to let out sort of uh, even further, greater uh, judgment type events that are going to be unfolding here. So with that being said, we're going to now begin to take a look at some, uh, some of the events that begin to transpire. Uh, so the next slide, we'll basically see the first four. What you'll notice again also, kind of keeping in mind with certain types of rhythm. Uh, the book of Revelation is a very rhythmic book, if you haven't picked that up already. 
uh, all sorts of rhythm in the book. There, there's, there's numbers that are used. There's symbols that are used. Uh, in the sequence of events, every single type of uh, judgment that comes out, it's always done this way. There's four, pause, and then three. Four, pause, and then three. Four, pause, and then three. It's the same way right here. So chapter eight are the first four judgments that are going to come undone. And then there's a pause, and then it uh, sort of unfolds into the last three. Remember, again, the last of which, of each of the, all of these judgments, whether it be trumpets, seals, or bowls, unfolds into another series of judgments. Is all making sense so far? You guys following? Good. All right. So let's take a look at the first few. Uh, verses 6 through 7 basically talks about hail and fire that's going to come down. Um, again, some sort of cataclysmic type of event or thing that ends up happening. And it says it's going to basically destroy one-third of the uh, earth, uh, the grass, the trees. All of these things will basically be consumed and destroyed at some point. Uh, and then the second one in verses 8 through 9 talks about a burning mountain. Now, it's been funny to read this. I mean, there's all sorts of speculation. A burning mountain, what does that mean? Um, some scholars, I think, honestly, the correct ones, just see this as a volcano, some sort of a massive, radical type of volcano. It's a perfect description of a burning mountain. In fact, um, some of the early recording, recorded stories about Mount Vesuvius, when it exploded, are very similar to what you read here. Uh, some of the descriptions when Mount Vesuvius exploded describes it as like this burning mountain, shooting fire all around the place and destroying the sea. Uh, uh, you know, as it just shoots things out, all sorts of sea life just dies. And that's what seems to be happening here. Some sort of burning mountain, possibly a volcano, destroys one-third of the sea, sea creatures, ships. Uh, the third thing, again, perhaps an asteroid or some sort of a comet. It talks about some sort of a, a burning torch uh, coming to the sky. It's kind of funny. Um, I don't know why, but I watched portions, clips of Armageddon just to get ready for this. Wasting my time. But Bruce Willis comes out, he saves the day. If you remember the whole story, it's all about like this massive asteroid coming to the earth and everybody's freaking out like, we're going to die. We need somebody who's going to help. And all of a sudden, like the music changes and there's Bruce Willis. He's like, what up? I'm here. And like Bruce Willis, you know, it's a whole story about he ends up hopping on this, you know, it's like, astronauts usually train for years you guys have six weeks it's like i'll take it i'm up to the task and they get out sent out of this asteroid and they drill a hole remember that it explodes and they save the world even though there's all sorts of danger and devastation uh anyways yeah back on track whatever this is some sort of asteroid comet whatever it it, it seems to make its way to the earth i guess the point that i would make is that if this is what it's talking about it's not too far-fetched. We know from the, her, uh, the Earth's geological record, there have been occasions throughout history when things from outer space, you know, comets, whatever, probably not UFOs, have come and hit the Earth. I mean, we know that. There's, there's like craters in portions of the Earth, so we know if those things hit, massive damage could have been done way back when. So it's very possible that stuff like this could happen, it would seem as if, because of what the book of Revelation is talking about, that this is going to be an event that will happen one day, all part of sort of these uh, unfolding drama of God's redemption. Again, we'll, we'll kind of look at that phrase in just a moment here. Uh, the fourth thing we see is sort of the darkness of the sky. Uh, one third of the light in the sun, the moon, the stars will be affected, perhaps uh, by smoke, perhaps by clouds, perhaps by eclipse. We don't really know. But somehow we're told that the light of the earth will be affected by this 
and one-third. I don't think this means that one-third of the moon will be blown away, one-third of the sun will be missing. I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think somehow the light that comes forth from these, that brings forth life and we live by, uh, people live according to the stars. We'll look at this in just a moment here. So darkness, I think, will be sort of connected to this. One of the things I want you to keep in mind as we're looking through this, um, I, I see a very strong parallel to what's happening here and what happened in the book of Exodus, chapter 7, all the way through about 15, which was the great Exodus, when God led the people of Israel out of Egypt um, on into the wilderness. Remember that story? And there were these 10 plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians. And what you'll find oftentimes, each of these plagues uh, really, most scholars believe, attacked various gods or various idols that the people of Egypt uh, hoped in, worshipped, trusted. One of the very first things that Moses uh, was led by God to strike. You guys remember what it was? It, it, was, it was the river. It was the, great, it was the great Nile River. And the whole thing is it turns the blood. I mean, you got to understand, ancient civilizations were absolutely dependent upon water sources. In fact, they actually believed that the, the water source from the Nile was sort of provided by the gods. That the gods provided the water. And so they worshipped and served these false gods that were associated with the water. And the very first plague that God brings upon the people of Israel was basically an attempt not to just sort of ruin their lives or disrupt their lives, though it was that, not to ruin it, I said, but to disrupt it. But it was basically a message to say, the Nile doesn't provide life and water and substance for you. I do. I do. Each one of the items that was attacked in the ten plagues, I think, was associated with some sort of worship of of false god or false deity in the Egyptian uh, worldview. I think perhaps there's a very strong indication that I think that's what's happening here in chapters 8 and 9, is that God is literally disrupting life by basically shaking the hands of humanity off of the things that we have come to worship, those things that we have come to hold on to, those things that we look at and say, this is unmovable, and God's like, it's not unmovable, I'm unmovable. Just to prove to you that it's not immovable, and I am, and I'm not immovable, I will shake it just to prove to you what really truly is immovable. And what is movable? What's capable of being destroyed and what will ultimately live forever? In other words, God's trying to send a message to humanity. False gods are just that. They're false gods. They're false gods. So the next set of, uh, just before we get there, verse 13, here's what it says. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice that flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. And at the blast of the trumpets and the three angels that are about to blow. So what he basically unfolds for us is that there's this, uh, this eagle, uh, what looks like an eagle. And it says, I heard an eagle cry uh, with a loud voice. That's interesting because in Hebrew perspective, an eagle is actually an unclean bird. Uh, it was, you know, a raptor. It kind of speaks of something that's, that's bad. Um, and this thing's flying around in heaven, crying out, saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. A woe was basically a pronouncement of, of doom or judgment. Now you remember... Uh, Jesus actually pronounced woes. I think it's in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus pronounces uh, a series of woes upon the religious leaders, the scribes, Pharisees. And he basically calls them, you guys are hypocrites. He says, woe to you because, and he gives them a series of reasons why he's pronouncing these woes upon them. Isaiah, kind of an interesting story. Isaiah, if you recall, 
uh, chapters like one through six, it starts out where Isaiah pronounces these woes upon the people of Israel. And then chapter six, if you remember, Isaiah sees God. Remember the story, Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. Who does Isaiah pronounce the woe upon? Himself. I mean, the first five chapters, he's like, woe to you guys. Woe for the way you're living. Woe to what you're doing. And all of a sudden, chapter six, he sees God. And the whole woe turns upon himself. He's like, what was me? I'm undone. I'm a messed up guy. My life's messed up. I cuss all the time. My lips are just unclean. I say bad things. I think bad things. I'm a bad person. I need grace. And all of a sudden, he's introduced to this reality of the power of God in a profound way that affects him and changes him and ultimately equips him for being the type of person that's going to go out and communicate the gospel. Let me just say something to you guys. Um, I think one of the reasons why the book of Revelation has this tendency to be really interesting to some, and other people are like, ah, what does Revelation have to do with me? To be really quite frank with you, some of the people that are all into the book of Revelation are just angry. They're just angry. They're upset. They're frustrated. They, they are looking for an opportunity to just somehow pronounce woes of judgment upon other people. They love that aspect of the book of Revelation. They love the aspect of trying to be like, you know, this is about us. We are, you know, God's people were redeemed. And all them out there, they're the ones that are all messed up. They're the ones that God's going to judge. And there's sort of this mentality of like, and I like it that way. And what I want to basically challenge you with is to think about, I hope that's not you. I hope that's not our church. I hope that's not how we think. If that's you, I hope that you consider the grace that's been shown to you. I hope that you would have an understanding the way Isaiah had this understanding. That even though woes may be pronounced, even though there is a sense where God is very serious with regard to sin, even though there's this reality that God does take sin and judgment very seriously, I hope you understand very carefully that the only reason why you have grace and you've been shown grace is because God has just been good to you. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you have this now opportunity to boast and be like, I'm on God's team, everybody's on the bad team. This is not about you, you know, drawing circles around yourself, being like, we're the white team, we're the good team, we're the good guys, they're the bad ones, and one day they're going to get their due, and I can't wait because everything's going to just come to the conclusion where they're going to die, they're going to be judged, we're going to live forever, it's going to be awesome. I want to basically say something about this, is that there will be no gloating in heaven. Be really honest with you, we are not going to gloat. We're not going to be all about like, we're so stoked. We're the only ones that are saved. We're like the inner circle. Jesus loves us and hates them. There's not gloating, okay? I'll be really honest with you. I, this, this, this thought is so pervasive in modern-day evangelical Christianity. I don't have any problem attacking my own team, okay? I mean, let's just be honest. This is part of the pathway to heal, to be healed, to find honesty is to just be able to recognize, to be able to willingly look at ourselves as a church, as a group, as a community of saints in America, and just say, you know what? The evangelical Christian community in America has not done a good job at being able to speak humbly and carefully about these issues. Instead, there's been sort of this arrogance, this gloating, this us and them mentality. We're the good guys, everyone else is the bad guys. And I, I really think we got to change that. we got to think differently about that. And I think the answer to that is the same answer that came to Isaiah. He saw God. He saw God. That's what we're trying to say. If we read the book of Revelation, 
and we don't see God, we don't see Jesus, you know what? We're going to be arrogant. We're going to feel like our way of viewing this book is the correct way. We're going to be righteous, self-righteous, I should say. We're going to go around wanting to pick fights. We're going to have sort of this mentality of, you know, forget about the rest of the world because it's about us anyhow. And what I'm trying to say is this. What we really desperately need more than anything is to just see Jesus. To just see Jesus and let him change us. Let him remind us that we have all been under God's woe. But by grace we've been saved. By grace God has chosen. God, by grace God has forgiven. So we read that there's going to be these three woes that are going to basically come upon these people. Uh, and then basically jumping on into chapter 9, verse 1, the next uh, two more judgments are going to befall. We're not going to get to the seventh uh, judgment today or the seventh trumpet today because, again, uh, that will unfold into the next, uh, next series. Uh, but the, the fifth one we're going to basically take a look at, and it gets pretty gnarly now. Uh, he talks about satanic locusts. You're like, what? Satanic locusts? What does that mean? Uh, I basically get that from this. Let me read you just a couple of verses out of this. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke like smoke from a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the shaft. And then the smoke came out, and then from the smoke came locusts on earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. And he goes on, he says, and these guys had the power to torment people for five months. Uh, why five months? Uh, typically, the lifespan of a locust is around five months. But these aren't just regular locusts. Because it goes on, verses 7 through uh, about 11, and he describes these. I'll give you a couple examples. These have human faces. They have hair like a woman's hair. They've got teeth like lion's teeth. These are some crazy, crazy locusts. So to be really honest with you, what I think maybe these are describing is some sort of satanic thing. I, I almost kind of picture, like, in my mind, I think, like, these are like the freaky monsters in I Am Legend. You know what I'm talking about? Remember? Will Smith, he's got cruising around, and he's like, freaky crazy, weird monsters appear in the street and they're attacking him. And he just kills them, shoots them. These weird type of demonic beings that are just out and destroying. They have this power, this ability to harm. Uh, I think there's something very demonic going on here. Uh, I think the indication of that is because it comes out of sort of the center of the earth. There's smoke and different types of uh, uh, indicators that would probably reveal this is not just typical uh, locust. And again, I know there's, you know, others that kind of speculate, well, maybe these are, you know, Apache helicopters. I don't know, man. I really don't know. I'm not even going to go there, to be honest with you. But the point of the matter is, I think this is some sort of satanic thing that's going on. There's, it's just gnarly stuff that's happening here. It's very satanic, just crazy type stuff. If you're a gamer, this is like Duke Nukem. Just crazy monsters coming out at you, Right? Right? I'm going to be nice to you World of Warcraft people today, because I I know you guys need inner healing. But I'm basically just going to say, whatever these are, these are some sort of gnarly type of creature that comes out of the belly of the earth, and they have all sorts of power. However, this is the first group of calamities that come that don't ultimately kill uh, or destroy. They have the power to destroy, or they have the power to uh, inflict pain, but they don't ultimately kill. All right? Um, the next group, is, I'm going to call it basically satanic soldiers. And again, uh, we basically read down, take a look at about verse 14. It says, 
uh, then saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound in the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour of the day, the month, the year, released to kill a third of mankind. The number mounted the troops was uh, twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard a number. Now, I'm not great at math, but I think the number that I calculated is like 200 million. It's a lot of beings, whatever these are. And again, these are sort of rallied together around these uh, these these other four type of satanic angels that have been released from this particular region. It tells us from the region of the Euphrates why this particular area. Possibly, possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly because if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, Babel, Babylon, um, the fall of man, the first murder, the Garden of Eden, came from that particular region, came from that particular area. So at least throughout the scripture, the motif of uh, Euphrates River uh, sort of spoke of kind of the origination of a lot of that type of stuff. So it's possible to be kind of like a euphemism of just severe evil that ends up coming from that particular part of the world and creating some crazy types of demonic activity that ends up happening. It says, and this is how I saw the horses. And again, he describes how he saw them. They had these breastplates, uh, the color of fire, sapphire. Again, these aren't just like regular soldiers. There's something very unique, perhaps something very satanic about these types of beings. Verse 18 says, and by the three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur. So whatever these beings are, they have this uh, unbelievable power to bring about, again, massive death upon uh, some sort of future generation that will be around upon the earth dealing with this type of situation. And perhaps one of the greatest, most tragic type of verses I think you can read in your Bible in verse 20, it says this, and the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see nor hear nor walk. Nor do they repent of the murders, the sorceries, and of their sexual morality, or their thefts. Here's what I want to basically say about this. This scenario that's basically unfolding in chapters 8 and 9 um, sort of climaxes in all sorts of calamities, but then sort of almost decompresses at this last verse, verse 20, where it says the only bummer, the only bummer is that the rest of mankind that was on the planet did not let go of worshiping their false gods. So here's what I want to say. I think personally, my personal idea is that each of these calamities that comes upon the earth that attacks, whether it be the light on the planet, whether it be the streams, drinking water, the earth, uh, and out of the earth, what comes out of the earth is like silver, gold, all the types of precious stones that people uh, enjoy, they wear around their necks, they have bling all over their bodies, all these things that people are prone to devote themselves and worship. I think basically what God's trying to do through this whole circumstance of events is to say, these aren't gods. These aren't real gods. Don't worship them. Don't love them. Don't serve them. They're movable. I'm not movable. They break. I don't break. They'll let you down. I don't let you down. And I think the reason why, I think the force of this, what I'm trying to say is this, is because this verse sort of comes up and says, even in light of everything that's just transpired, even in light of the fact that the earth is one-third dark and things are broken, there's 
fire burning up everything, everything that we once held dear is now consumed before our very eyes. People still would not let go of worshiping their false gods made out of stone, made out of silver and gold and precious stones. And he adds this little phrase from the Old Testament. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't talk, they can't feel. And yet we as humanity still devote ourselves to them. That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. That is the tragedy of the world in which we live in today. That, God forbid, is perhaps a tragedy of some of your lives currently. You're still devoting yourselves to false gods, false deities, false things that cannot satisfy, that cannot fulfill, they can't talk to you, they can't benefit you. They can't help you. They don't speak to you. They don't give wisdom. They don't impart value to you. All these idols do is they take and they leave you feeling destroyed. And it's as if what's going on here is God shaking things. He's shaking the world saying, these aren't your gods. I am. I have the power. I flex my might. I flex my strength. Look at me. See me. Trust me. Love me. Worship me. And yet the tragedy is they go on worshiping these false gods. They go on worshiping these false things, these false idols. And notice he has this like little last statement. He says, not only that, but they go on, they don't repent from their murders, their sorceries, their sexual morality, their thefts. Let me say this. There's a tendency in Christian culture today to be all about you know, trying to make sure that your uh, moralistic behavior is correct. There's some Christians that are all about, you know, just look right, act right, talk right, say the right things, don't use bad language, don't see bad movies. And, and they, they leave this impression in your mind that Christianity is really just about doing the right things. I want to say this. I believe that there's a reason why the order is, first, they have not repented from worshiping being their false gods, and then secondly, they've not repented from their murders and their idolatries and their adulteries and so on and so forth. Here's the reason. It's because the first issue that needs to be dealt with are the idols that we worship. Let me just tell you something. If you're the type of person that is just focused on behavior and you don't deal with, wrestle with, challenge, confront the idols of your life, you're not dealing with the problem. You're just dealing with the behavior. If you're a type of dad or a parent that just focuses on the behavior of your kids, but don't wrestle with, confront, deal with the idols of your children's heart. Did he just say children have idols? Yes. Even children have idols, things that they value, things that they worship, things that they devote themselves to, things that they value with all of their heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And those things that we value, worship, find worth in, we devote ourselves to. And those idols have this power, this ability over our lives to create all sorts of behavior and behavioral patterns that are destructive to community, that are destructive to civilization, that are destructive to our lives, to our families, ultimately to our souls. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Get the pattern correct, otherwise all you're doing is dealing with the symptoms. You're never dealing with the real heart of the matter. The matter at the heart is the idolatry in people's lives. You gotta look at this in your own life. 
I can't do this for you. You have to take a look and confront the idols of your own heart. We are all, I love what Martin Luther said, the heart is an idol factory. Our hearts, by nature, by nature, are very adept at manufacturing and creating idols. You understand that? I mean, if you're really, truly honest with yourself, we are very good at it. This is one of the reasons, I've said this before, why John finishes his little tiny, you know, postcard of a letter by saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because even Christians are prone to this. It affects everybody. This is why, even in the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall not make any other God in my image or in my likeness. I alone am the true and living God. Don't replace me with anything else. Why? Because the propensity of our heart is to always replace God with something else. Be it ourselves, we worship ourselves. Be it somebody else, we want their affection, we want their attention, we want their approval. Be it a job, we want our job to basically be what satisfies us and find, we find pleasure, we find fulfillment in that job. Be it sex, drugs, I mean all the things. You can go down the list. But deal with the idols of the heart and not just simply the moralistic behavior you confront the idols and the morality gets changed you understand what i'm trying to say this is why paul will say things like this first worship the living god and then you will be conformed or transformed into his image meaning if you used to steal rather than stealing you'll give if you're the type of person that abuse other people rather than being an abuser anymore, you're going to be the type of person that helps other people, that serves other people. See what happens? When Jesus becomes not just the idol of our lives, he's not an idol, but the God of our lives, we worship and serve him, and he replaces and confronts and knocks down other false gods or idols in our lives, then our behavior changes. Make sure you get that right. Otherwise, all you do, all you do is you sound a lot like Pharisees. You know what you end up doing? Depending upon the type of kids that you're raising, you are either going to create little Pharisees or little rebellious kids. Rebellious kids that go out and demonstrate the rebellion by doing all the things you don't want them to do as soon as you turn your back and they're doing it. Or they act really good, really nice, say the right things, quote the right Bible verses, talk the right Christian talk, but inwardly they hate God. They're Pharisees. You've either created a rebellious kid or a Pharisee. We want to create disciples of Christ. Kids that love Jesus. And the way that you do that is you confront the idols and the idolatry and not so much focusing on the morality. Then the morality will change. I want to move on and finish up. What I want to do right now and kind of wrap it up and take a look at throughout this passage, throughout really the story here, try to understand and see Jesus in this. The first thing I want you to notice I see here kind of rising in the text. I love this. is because one of the things that we notice about Christ is he reveals to us really that he answers and hears our prayers. Jesus hears our prayers. I love this about him. Take a look at the first few verses of chapter eight. There's this little section here where it talks about uh, this um, smoke arising to God, this incense arising to God. It says that these are the prayers of the saints. Uh, Several times already in the book of Revelation, it talks about the prayers of the saints. Some of these prayers are prayers of uh, vindication, meaning they've suffered for Christ, and so they're asking God to come and vindicate vindicate them but the point that i want to make is this that jesus answers our prayers they literally rise to his throne they make their way into his presence and god does something with them i want to say this that we have this propensity to believe it's a false belief that our prayers really just don't even make it anywhere 
kind of this mentality, like we pray, where do our prayers go? It's almost like they're like, you know, something that they just sort of go out into nowhere. It's like vaporize. They don't have any impact, any effect. But I want you to understand, uh, basically the accumulation of prayers of the saints, at least according to chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, it says that they make their way to the throne of God. And they have impact. God responds to them. God answers them and listens to them. So I want to encourage you when it comes to praying, what praying is, is that we seek God. It's dialogue. We ask God to work. We read God's word. He speaks to us. God communicates to our hearts. We ask God to bring his kingdom. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who's in heaven. He says, holy is your name. And he says, let your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. And it would seem as if we have this tendency to think, well, maybe our prayers aren't being answered because the world's pretty messed up. Not a lot of good things are happening in this world. But the reality is, is that our prayers are being answered and will be answered. God will honor those prayers. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired thinking that God doesn't answer them. He does. So that's the first thing I want you to notice, that they are something of importance to Jesus. And then the second thing I want you to notice is this, that Jesus reveals his mercy even in judgment. I see this throughout the passage. Uh, every single time in every single trumpet blast you read, it says that one-third of the earth was destroyed, or one-third of the trees were wiped out, or one-third of the ships on the sea were wiped out, or one-third of the people were wiped out. I see even in this the mercy of God. I think the way that a Hebrew mind would have understood this is not just so much, okay, uh, that means out of ten people, you know, three and a third died. I don't think that's how they would have looked at it. I think they would have looked at it and says, wow, that means, you know, two-thirds survived. God is showing mercy. God is communicating something. God is not wiping out everything. This judgment is not ultimate and, and final. This is not the final, ultimate judgment. It's leading up to it, but this is not that day of finality. God is still showing mercy, even in the midst of this. And I think one of the evidences of this comes out in the very last verse of chapter 9 that we just read. That even in the midst of all of this, I don't even know why John would have even said this, that even in the midst of all of this calamity, people still would not repent. They still would not let go of their idols and their idolatrous ways and their bad behavior. They just still wouldn't let go of it, which to me speaks to me and says, at least it seems as if there's an opportunity for them to do that. That even in the midst of this, of, of, of danger and hardship and suffering, God's still trying to speak and communicate to them. There's mercy even in that. Because the reality is, is that all of us in this world will suffer. Jesus even said, he says, be of good share. <laughs> if they persecuted me, you're going to be persecuted. So the reality is this. If you're a Christian, you may suffer persecution. You will suffer. There will be difficulties in your life. But the other reality is if you're here and you're not a Christian, you too will suffer. Every single one of us in this world will suffer at some point or time in our lives. So all of us. We live in a world that's broken. It's broken. And because we live in a world that's broken, we will at some point or at some moment in our life be confronted with the pure brokenness of our own lives or something will break around us or somebody that we know that we love will suffer and die or find themselves confronted with something really bad and we will suffer alongside of them. My point is this, is that we will all suffer. And one of the things that God oftentimes does through suffering is he speaks to us. It's mercy. God mercifully speaks to us. C.S. Lewis would put it like this. 
God, God, God shouts at us, yells at us in our adversities. It's like a megaphone speaking to our soul. That's the way God uses oftentimes calamity and suffering in our lives. It's God communicating to us mercy to let go of that which is shakable, that which is uh, able to be broken, that which is perhaps an idol, so that we would let go of those idols and cling to the everlasting God. I mean, I want to basically say this, that every moment of difficulty and calamity in our life are these moments to be able to see God and to trust God. What's the thing about something? Where were you, I mean, don't answer me, but where were you on the moment of 9-11? You remember? You remember where you were at? You remember the emotions and the feelings that you had? I do. It was, it was amazing. I can tell you exactly where I was at the moment. I remember waking up in the morning, and I was at a retreat, and I remember walking out, and people, nobody was in there. I was like, where is everybody? This is weird. There's bacon on the table. More bacon for me. This is a really, really blessed morning. And then all of a sudden I realized it wasn't blessed because everybody was outside watching TV. Because they were watching all these events that had just happened. And remember, right then, the whole conference ended. I drove home. Uh, we gathered together uh, with a handful of pastors at a church here in town. And we just spent uh, the next few hours and really kind of led into the next few days of just praying. Lots of people were coming. Lots of people were impacted. Lots of people's lives were shaken up by that whole event. What was the number one thing that happened in America? I mean, everybody was posting these little, you know, flyers and little things on their door, like, God bless America. Facebook was around back then. Everybody would be like, you know, God bless America. It'd be all about somehow God would sort of become in the center of all things again. Why? Because suffering has an effect. Suffering has an effect. Maybe some of you, maybe that's how you came to know Christ, is God used a traumatic circumstance in your life, and those traumatic circumstances are oftentimes God's means and ways of shaking things which break and proving to you that that will not, cannot sustain your soul. So you let go of it and you clung to God. That was mercy. That was God's mercy. It's God's love. His kindness being demonstrated. So I can't help but notice that even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of God shaking things up in a profound way, he's still being merciful. He's still showing kindness, even in the midst of all of this. The third thing I want you to notice is this that I see here in the passage, is that Jesus is ultimately restoring, here's a big word, the cosmos, all right? He's restoring the cosmos. Like, what in the world is cosmos? Is that a Star Trek term? No, it just means order. Uh, Cosmos just means order, the order of all things. The reality is we live in a world where there's perceptible order, meaning the systems that we set up, it seems to have order. But in reality, it's just, it's a system that can be broken at any moment. One of the perfect evidences of this is, for example, in Haiti. Immediately after all the things that had happened, it just absolute chaos broke out. People fighting each other, perhaps neighbors that lived next to each other. It, was, it became survival of whoever had the strongest ability, whoever had the greatest ability to survive, to get water. And yeah, there might have been moments of punctuated you know, grace and help, or some neighbor's going to help out another person. But by and large, the whole entire condition turned to one of just chaos. So we live in a world system that's broken. And Jesus ultimately is restoring that. So if you read the book of Revelation, and all you think care, look at, talk about is destruction. If that's all that you see, then I'm challenging you to think differently. Think differently. Think this way. 
think that this is Jesus' means of restoring all things. In other words, this is his process of overthrowing sort of a false order, a broken system, the kingdoms of this world that are broken, the kingdoms of this world which don't work, which have literally sort of embedded themselves into all sorts of people's hearts, all sorts of systems throughout the world, but they don't work. So Jesus is coming. Jesus is restoring, and the way he restores may have a devastating type of an appearance, which it does. It's destructive to some degree, but it's not destructive in just terms of, uh, you know, ambiguous means. Jesus is not just simply coming to just destroy things. He has a purpose in mind. His purpose is restoration. You got to get this. You got to see this. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 says. It says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So it says all creation, that means the earth, the sky, the stars, the grass, the sea, all of these things that we saw kind of being destroyed and broken. It says, for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So I think what Paul is basically saying is, is yes, it's painful, but the pain is like childbirth pain. If you, if you're, your dad, or if you are a woman, you had a baby, if you've been around somebody that has a baby, you know that childbirth, the pains of childbirth aren't fun, right? I mean, we got a lot of women in our church right now that are pregnant. A lot of women are pregnant, and they're going to be going through the pains of childbirth, and nothing can really prepare them for that. I mean, yeah, they take Lamaze classes, and yeah, they try to figure out how to breathe, and yeah, their husband will try to be the best husband they can to kind of help them through that whole entire process. You can read books, but nothing will prepare you for that pain. It's painful, but the pain <laughs> gives way. See? Confirmation. That was an amen. I interpret that. That was in tongues, and that was an amen. Positive of that. Positive of that. Got a first Pentecostal kid. That was awesome. <laughs> the point that I want to make is this, is that childbirth is painful, but it gives way. It gives way to something beautiful. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Paul affirms. It's painful, but it's creating a way to restore, restoration. The fourth thing I want you to notice is this, is that Jesus flexes his power ultimately to reveal his position. So what does that mean? Basically this. Jesus is conveying, communicating, emphasizing his power. One of the reasons why God, I mean, if, here, let me give you an example. When Jesus was on a planet and he did miracles, he didn't do miracles like a magician. He wasn't like cruising around trying to get a crowd of people to follow him and be like, that's awesome, right? Can I know that trick? That was amazing, like turning food, you know, rocks into food. That's awesome. How do you do that? That's, that's not the point of it. The point was to flex his power, God's power to demonstrate who he was. Right? Televangelists that are all about, you know, doing miracles and stuff like that to just try to somehow build a name for themselves and not glorify Jesus, not communicate, not emphasize, not build up Jesus. Let me just even say this. Who only emphasize the Spirit are not doing it properly. Jesus, the Spirit's job is to glorify Christ, to point direction to Jesus. Every time God flexes his power, it's meant to emphasize the glory of Christ the beauty of Christ, the position of Christ. Let me give you an example. Romans 1, 19 says this. There's the power of God in creation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, 
has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So this group of people that he's talking to, writing to, he's saying, look, God has created all things. And when you look around and you see creation, there's a power in creation that's absolutely beautiful. There's a beauty, but there's a power in creation. To look at things and realize all things came to be. Basically what Paul's saying is that one of the reasons for it is to demonstrate that God is greater than creation. God created all things, and so therefore God must, if creation's powerful, God must be more powerful than creation. Okay? Uh, there's a power basically over creation. Um, Jesus oftentimes, remember he exercises power. One time he tells the sea to be calm, and the sea's calm. And all of a sudden his disciples are like, who is this that has power over creation? Well, the answer to that is God does. God does. So what's the message Jesus is trying to say? I'm God. I'm God. I'm with you. I'm Jehovah. I am, I am the one sent from God. I'm here as God and as man for the purpose of redemption. Then the last thing I want you to notice is this, that there's also probably one of the greatest powers that Paul talks about is the power of resurrection. Here's what he says, Ephesians chapter 1. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of Christ, uh, his, or according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places, far above every rule, authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Basically what Paul's trying to say is this, that there's a power in the resurrection. Jesus rose again from the dead. He's all-powerful. His resurrected power demonstrates that Jesus is above all principality, all power, it's all demonic uh, force. That's where Jesus is today. So the question can be asked, where is Jesus now? Who is Jesus today? The answer is that he is above all things, all powerful over all things. And when Jesus flexes power, he does so to convince us that he alone is God. And the same time, the other edge of that sword is to prove that not only that Jesus is God, but that our idols aren't. That Jesus is powerful and our idols are powerless. That Jesus gives and our idols take. Do you understand where this is all going? It's going Christ's word. It's pointing to Jesus. Everything is intended. Every time God issues forth another trumpet blast or another type of calamity happens upon the planet that we saw, it was all meant to point to the beauty and the power and the greatness of Christ so that nobody would have any question in their mind as to who Jesus is, that he's God. The last thing I want to finish with is this, that Jesus is moving all things according to his plan. I, I, I can't help but notice this in this verse, and I want to finish here. He says in verse uh, 14 of chapter 9, saying, release the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. When I read this, to me, it just speaks to me very clearly that everything that you just seen happen was all according to a very planned script that God has forewritten. Throughout Jesus' life, you'll see this little phrase appear all throughout the gospel accounts as it was written, or according to the scripture. When Jesus is on the cross dying, what's he thinking about? Fulfilling the scripture. Jesus cries out, I thirst. Why? To fulfill the scripture. Jesus says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Or Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? To fulfill the scripture. 
to fulfill the script. It's a script. God's plan. This drama of redemption is being unfolded moment by moment by moment. God's in control. And if God's in control of these massive events that will one day happen, of this world in which we live, of even the kings of this world, how much more is he in control of your life? How many times do we just sit back and we wonder, like, God, where are you in my life? Where are you in my pain? Where are you in my circumstances? Talk to single people all the time. They're just like, God, where are you? I'm 30 years old. I don't have a husband yet or a wife yet. Where are you? Are you going to do anything, God? Or married people that are like, I want to have kids desperately. God, why? How come I can't have any kids? Where are you? God, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you doing something? Or a guy who's been maybe homeless for a while, or somebody doesn't have a job. God, where are you? How come you're not doing something? And my point that I want to make is this, is that part of the life in which we live, the most challenging part of this life in which we live, is to just literally come to the point of just, by faith, walking in that truth, that all things God unfolds in our life is according to his prepared plan. It will come to pass in the very hour, the very day, the very moment. He's in control. He's in control. It's hard sometimes to grasp. It's hard sometimes to trust, to believe. But that's part of walking by faith. Trusting God. Seeing him. Going back to past evidences of God doing this. I want to finish with this little last song. I'm going to have Chris coming up and he'll lead us. I'm not going to sing it, trust me. It's by a guy named uh, William Cooper. Um, Amazing guy. He was good friends with John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Throughout his whole entire life, he struggled with depression, and at least three occasions, he tried to commit suicide. He was one of the most well-known poets in all of England. His uh, poetry became so popular, made its way into America. Guys like Benjamin Franklin read it, loved it. He's a really well-known guy. And uh, just prior to committing suicide, I think for the third time, he wrote this song. I want you to listen to it. Just listen to it. It has to do with this idea of just knowing that God's in control. Here's what he says. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. And then he says, deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs, and he works his sovereign will. Finishes with his last little section. He says, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Guys, the real question is this in our lives. Who, who's at the center of it? Who are we looking to? Who are we looking at? Who are we trusting in? I think the purpose of all of these things that we've read are intended to draw us back to Christ, that we would look to him, that we would trust in him, that if you're living in sin right now, that you would let go of your sin, that you would let go of those false idols that you've been holding on to, knowing that they don't sustain you. If there's sinful behavior in your life, the question is, what are the gods you're serving? What are, this, what are those gods? And are they leading you to paths of life? That's where we need to go. So we're going to respond right now. We're going to worship Jesus. God's word has gone forth. His revelation has communicated to us Christ. There's more than enough revelation of Jesus this morning for us just to worship, to love him. 
We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is a way for us who love this church, who are part of this church, who want to give back to this church, to give joyfully. Some of you maybe need to respond by repenting, turning from your sin, asking God to cleanse you, to wash you, to forgive you from rival thrones that you have in your life right now. Asking God to wash away, to cleanse the defilement of sin. We'll partake communion together if you'd like. We have communion in the back, in those three areas. Please feel free to enjoy that, to consider the death and the resurrection of Christ. But if you're not a Christian here, I encourage you, trust in Christ today. Trust in Him, love Him. Ask Him to wash you and cleanse you for all your sin. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for us. God, we don't want that just to be cliche. We don't want it to be like theology that we just whip out of our pockets every time we just want to sound spiritual. God, we want that to be sort of the anthem of our lives. That we are thankful for the cross. It's the mercy of God, the love of God unfolded, revealed, conveyed, communicated. Jesus, your ways, your beauty, your power is immeasurable, unfathomable. Now we just want to give back to you our worship and our honor and our praise to you right now. Just receive our songs as tokens of love.